is Arthur Miller. I have but one question for you. Can you attend my class? You get used to doing your own business on your own time. That's one demand I make. Just like you wouldn't want me to come to your house some evening and discuss history on your time. Understand? Yes, sir. Welcome to the Lake Forest Podcast, a podcast about the lovely city of Lake Forest, featuring topics like local news, sports, music, people, food, and history. My name is Pete, and I'm joined by co-host, Lake Forest history legend, Arthur Miller. We both live in Lake Forest. Before we start our class, we have a sponsor for the show, Dakota Insurance Group. They've got your back. Why? Because that's what friends are for. Dakota Insurance Group handles all your residential and commercial insurance needs. Get a quote now at dakotainsurancegroup.com. Okay, one of the goals of the podcast is for listeners to learn just a little bit more about Lake Forest. But who better to teach us than our own Lake Forest history legend, Arthur Miller? Okay, everyone, take your seats. I think Arthur's got a ruler in his hands. Fold your hands on top of your desk. Our class is about to begin. Art, how you doing, my friend? Well, I'm great. Thank you very much. How are you? Oh, absolutely fantastic. Both feet hit the floor this morning. We're both doing good. So, so what do you got in store for us now? I think you got one of the Chicago stars we're going to talk about, the Chicago Fire. Is that right? <laughs> yes, right. The 150th anniversary this year. This is the 150th anniversary in 2021 of the 1871 Chicago fire. We're all reading about the wildfires they're having out west, and we can't imagine how that would happen. Well, it happened even in Chicago. We, we've had a lot of rain in recent years. It's been a little dry this year, but it's hard to imagine how dry it was in 1871, and then how just how that could have happened. But the fire was a major thing for Chicago. For Lake Forest, it was actually pretty significant. Lake Forest is pretty interesting for people who live here or visitors to see what actually the north side of Lake of, of the city of Chicago was like before the fire. In the 1860s, 1865-1871 period, there were beautiful houses on the north side of the um, Chicago River. Pine Street, which became Michigan Avenue, um, and then in individual blocks um, along Wabash, State Street over in there, uh, Dearburn, Clark, there were huge houses. Only one of them survived the fire. That was the Malon Ogden, or the Malon Ogden House, and it later was torn down to make the Newberry Library. But that was the only house that survived. It was north of a little park, but otherwise the fire swept right past it in the 900 block to go clear up into Lincoln Park, Old Town, Lincoln Park, blow that all away. Um, it's, it's hard for us to remember, the fire started in the southwest side at that time, down near today's um, Holy Name Cathedral area and blew up all the way to into Lakeview or almost to Lakeview. So it's, it's almost unimaginative for us today. But there were lots of houses that were like the ones that were in Lake Forest being built from oh, around 1860 to 1870. Um, the ones I'll mention in Lake Forest that we, if you, so if you want to see what Chicago would have been like for a 
the, the wealthier group. You'd look at um, places like on Sheridan Road, 570, which is just opposite the main gates of middle campus of Lake Forest College, the Holt House. It's a square Andrew Jackson Downing Italian villa style uh, picturesque house. And the north of it was the 660 North Sheridan Road, which is still there. Really fascinating house that's still there. There wasn't even anything as good in Chicago at the time. Um, it was the um, picturesque or irregular Italianate villa. And if you look at the house, it's, it's Italianate, but what it's got on the north side that you see through the gates if you drive by slow at 660, you see a Chinese pagoda sticking up straight and it's got gold leaf on the, on the spire of it. It's sort of a curved spire. That place, it was really incredible. And it had a garden that swept over to the ravine to the north, uh, opposite where the Presbyterian church is. And it was just spectacular. There were places that were as big, but I don't think they were as good. Um, I don't think they were as good as the places that we have still surviving here in Lake Forest. So it's another one that's been a little bit cut down, 644 East Deer Path. That had a big tower on it, but the tower was taken down probably in the, I would imagine around the 1920s, something like that. Um, but the house is still there at 644. It was built by DJ Lake, who was a real estate guy in Chicago, built it in 1870. And it had, well, just spectacular, and still has lots of wonderful features, kind of like a Newport, Rhode Island house, um, still there. Now, it had, what had originally been on that property, which was opposite or just to this, and just north of what was originally Lake Forest Academy, was a building that showed up on the early maps, the very first early map in 1861, that was on a, an inset for the Lake County map showed up as the Academy boarding, boarding House. Now the Academy Boarding House was a pretty good sized place. It had a large dining room for, with a high ceiling for a capacity maybe of 50 or 60 boys originally. And there was a, a second floor that had a place where the people who cared for it lived. It only operated though for about a year. Um, and then they moved the kitchen. It opened in March of 1859. It was, they, they put the kitchen into the main building, which was across the street, I think in, um, in 1860. So the building was still there. Uh, DJ Lake bought it from educational institution that had built it, lived there. His son went to school there um, at the academy. And in 1860, probably 1869 or so, he decided, I'm doing great. I'm going to build myself a real Lake Forest house. So he moved that building, that 1859 building, straight west um, to over by Sheridan Road. And it sits there today. It's 725 North Sheridan Road. Um, it was um, purchased in 1874 by a Mrs. Whitney, who is a widow, but her name was Elizabeth Turner Whitney. And her husband or her father, I'm sorry, her father had brought railroad technology to Chicago in 1848. So um, that was a post-fire person to move in, an important post-fire person to move in. And she modernized it with having a, a hallway redone by 
Um, John Welburn Root, about 1890. Uh, Root was a partner with Daniel Burnham uh, in Chicago, a famous architect that did a lot of planning and did a lot of big buildings. Root died in 1891, but he'd done this work and he built a house for her brother on Lakeshore Drive that's gone now because of all the apartment buildings. And I think her brother had a, a place that's still out here in Lake Forest called, his name was Valentin Turner. And his place is at 95 South Waukegan Road, it's still there. You can't really, it's tucked in, so you can't really see it from the street when you're driving by fast, but it's there. Um, big house. This was kind of what the streetscape was like there in the period before the fire. Uh, it was, it was a, an extension of Chicago. It was like the Garden District north side. It was more private. People were secretive in Lake Forest. Partly, and partly that's why the streets curved so much. Partly that was why the, um, uh, and they also had early African-Americans living here when they weren't quite legal yet. So that was maybe a factor, but people didn't publish their addresses here until well into the 20th century. You couldn't find them in a directory. Um, it was an anti-city kind of setup and you had to know somebody to find people. So this was what the town was like. Um, the fire, well, before the fire, Lake Forest was pretty much roaring back after the Civil War. 1871, in the summer, about this time, opened this beautiful five-story hotel on Lake Michigan, it's off on Mayflower, just uh, kind of around, just south of where Rosemary Road hits Mayflower Road, uh, back in there. There was a, this five-story hotel was built. Um, beautiful thing. And it was great. It had a huge summer. People like Joseph Medill, who ran the Tribune, came out. All the big bugs in Chicago came out and stayed in this hotel. In that little book that you showed that uh, I wrote, you know, there's a picture of the last menu of the last meal they served there on the Sunday night of October uh, 9th, I think it was 8th or 9th. 1871, because that's when the fire broke out in the city. All of a sudden, people didn't have a lot of spare time or cash to spend out in Chicago. They were busy uh, back in the city. The trains took them back into town. They tried to rescue their stuff. They couldn't believe this, the fire was going to be as extensive as it was. And it was an incredible impact. I mean, it was like, well, we, we know what natural disasters are like. We read about them all the time. Um, we can't picture one happening so close to us, but it did. Uh, hundreds of people were killed. But what's amazing is that thousands of people didn't die. The fire, um, people did escape ahead of the fire. And we had something that made it possible for people to survive, like Michigan. They waded into the lake, even if they couldn't carry all their stuff over with them. They were able to wade into the water and survive the fire. Uh, that was an amazing thing that more people weren't killed because you know, blocks upon blocks of buildings were just consumed. Then the fire burned out pretty much and people went back in and it was just rubble. I mean, it was, there was hardly anything. A few safes had survived, you know, um, a few little sticks of buildings were sticking up, but even the quote, quote unquote fireproof buildings because of the heat of this fire, they were just consumed. They just gone. So an immediate problem they had as people flocked back into the town 
Um, and as people had passed their goods on and moved them around and stuff, there was a lot of looting went on. A lot of victimization of people. People who had stuff kind of had to yield it to people who didn't have stuff on purpose or, you know, willingly or unwillingly. As a result, the uh, mayor at the time called in General Sheridan, who had, was out west fighting the Indians, had the troops come in and restore order. <clears throat> restore order for the city, try to stop having the upheaval that was going on. And Chicago rebuilt very quickly. Uh, some businesses were up and going. Some people re rebuilt their fancy houses even within a year. Um, unbelievable. Uh, money poured in. Some of the boosters went east and raised funds and told people that, you know, this is the time to invest in Chicago. This is not the time to not invest. You want to be there when this thing comes roaring back. Because the railroads had all came, the, the ones from the east stopped here. The ones going west began here and then went um, north and west. Lake Michigan made this a pinch point. Um, if you were up in Minnesota or something like that, the only way you could get east was to go through Chicago, go down through the around Lake Michigan. So Chicago had the spot and they were able to rebuild. People pretty quickly were convinced that that was how to do it. Uh, so people came roaring back. Uh, I mentioned already this one woman who bought this former dining hall, this Mrs. Whitney. Her father, John Turner, um, come in 1848, was a partner with William B. Ogden and started the first railroad. And he really knew how to do railroads. He'd been doing them since 1835. And so the, one of the most successful, most best investment kind of railroads was the Chicago Northwestern Railroad which ran this line that went up through Lake Forest in 1855. They took it over in about 1864. Turner was the president. And then a decade later, his widowed daughter bought this house. Um, but there were, there were several other effects of the fire that were critical for really Lake Forest then flourishing later on, uh, starting in the 1870s. There was, there was one family of people that were in the grocery business, wholesale grocery business in various forms. And they weren't even all working together. They had their own different businesses. Um, this was the Durand family. There was a Henry Durand who lived uh, just in a house just to the west on Deer Path from at that time from where Lake Forest College's North Campus is. He was the oldest of the siblings, Henry Calvin Durand. And then his um, one brother was Joseph Duran. He bought that big, white, irregular Italianate villa with the, the, the pagoda, uh, Chinese pagoda, with the golden um, gold leaf uh, spire. He bought that for his family. He, he, there was a sister-in-law, I think a sister of theirs that lived um, kind of where the Presbyterian churches parish houses just to the west of um, the corner of Deer Path and Sheridan. So, and then there was another brother, the youngest brother, the baby, was Calvin Durand. And Calvin Durand lived um, on, Mil on, on Mayflower Road, uh, south of Spring Lane, had a big house called Mary Mead. And um, he had a slew of kids. Henry Durand didn't really ever have any natural children, but his brother Kelvin had a slew of kids. 
And they all lived here. They all had houses built for them by Frost and Granger, the architects. They, that group um, got behind Lake Forest College and really built a lot of buildings for it in the 1890s and first decade of the 20th century. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself because one of the 18, an 1870 house before the fire was constructed by Charles B. Farwell. Now, Charles B. Farwell was the brother of John B. Farwell, who had come to Chicago in 1843 or 44, somewhere in there, early 1840s, and had started in working in stores. He worked in little, in, in what they call dry goods stores or places where you could buy bolts of material or even clothing sort of thing. He worked for a few different people. He married the daughter of one of the guys that he worked for uh, and started, took over that business pretty soon, built a huge warehouse that everybody thought he was nuts because he built a huge warehouse before the fire. They thought he would never get his money out. It was a joke, Farwell's warehouse. Well, Civil War came along. The only person who could stash stuff and ship it south on the Illinois Central Railroad to follow Grant when he went into Tennessee, Mississippi, was Farwell. He had this huge haul. So he was selling uniforms and everything to the Army, made a fortune. By 1864, he retired, led what they called sanitary work, which was helping kind of like, kind of Red Cross, but he didn't have Red Cross then, but helping with the troops and stuff. Uh, did a lot of, raised money to help support the troops. Uh, his brother took over, C.B. Farwell. Farwell had gone into politics. When he was like 21 in 1844 or so, he'd gone to work for the city clerk, or the county clerk of Cook County. He was just a kid, um, but the county clerk got sick and so he took over and he was county functioning as county clerk when he was like a kid, basically. Started, he became Chicago's first political boss as a Republican in the 1850s and 60s. Also, the first money he made from his first, very first jobs, he lived on the absolute minimum of it so that he would save it in the bank. And he started buying real estate in Chicago in the 1840s when it wasn't big. And he became a wealthy from his real estate investments in the loop um in what we call now the loop area he so he did really well he wasn't all he did was um bought low and held on and rented it out and helped support other people and then he had some political his political connections probably allowed him to know some more things than other people might know about where things were going to happen and stuff like that but it, it wasn't what we would what we would call today corrupt. I don't think where somebody, you know, was actually paying you bribes and stuff like that. He actually had made his money that way. But in those days, a lot of people came in the 1830s and 1840s, and they didn't understand why by the 1860s, some people were rich and other people weren't. Um, they kind of were a little bit, well, jealous would be an understatement. And one of the reasons they moved out to Lake Forest people like that was they didn't have people puttering around looking at their place. So they could build their great big houses um, up here uh, in after the Civil War. Both John V. built his house, which is at 888 East Deer Path, and 
Charles built his house, which is now at 965 East Tierbeck. Well, the house isn't there. His landscape and his garden feature, a couple of big uh, um, long arbors are still there and, and the terrace he built his house on. But it was burned in, 18, uh, in 1920. And so then it was replaced with a really top-notch New York architect built um, colonial style house on that same terrace. And it's still there, it's fabulous. So these two guys, they just didn't want a lot of people poking around in their stuff. Then Charles B. Farrell did run into a little trouble because he moved out to Lake Forest. He ran for Congress in 1870, the year before the fire. He was running against, um, or he beat out Medill, who was the head of the Tribune. Well, the Tribune guy started rooting around and figured out that actually it looked like G, old C.B. Farwell wasn't spending that much time sleeping overnight in Chicago. So he said, he's a carpetbagger. He lives in Lake Forest. He doesn't live in Chicago. Well, it was sour grapes. And uh, C.B. Farwell went to, went to Congress in 1870. He was in and out of Congress for 20 years, roughly. Um, a couple, he served maybe three terms, I think, in Congress, three or four terms in Congress. And then in 1887, he became senator. He was, at that time, the Senate elected the senators, the state, the state Senate elected senators and sent them off to Washington. So he was elected by the state Senate to replace somebody who died. And he was there from 1887 to 1891. Well, that was long enough for him to lead the floor fight in the Senate of the United States Congress when Chicago snatched away from New York City the right to have the World's Fair in 1893, 1892, 93. Um, he, he won that for Chicago. That was one of the things that put Chicago on the map. So he was here before the fire, but what did he do being up here already? Well, he, he was a guy that always had cash. Um, he meant whatever he was invested in, he always had some, some quick and ready at hand to use. So when the fire happened, nobody had cash. All of a sudden, everybody was borrowing from out east and everybody was selling everything they had in the forest to sort of put it, put it into their main gig in the city. So he snatched up a whole bunch of the south side of Lake Forest. He bought neighborhoods clear over by south of the college with colleges. Bought, he bought that old hotel that had opened in 1871 and functioned for like maybe three or four months before it went kaput. It just went bankrupt because there were no customers and there was no promise of customers. Couldn't meet their, couldn't pay their bills couldn't pay their loan problem. So he bought that off. So in 1876, he had, he had three daughters, I think, and one son. Um, and the oldest daughter, who was kind of a handful, was ready to go to school. And they didn't think she should go off to college someplace like, she'd gone to the Ferry Hall, but they didn't think she should go off to college because she, she looked like she kind of would do better if she was near home where her mom had a handle on it. So they said, well, we'll just start the college up. There had been a little men's college program in the building on near the corner of Sheridan and Deerpath that burned in 1879. Uh, it had gone under during the Civil War, 1863, it went under. And so there had been no college program until 1876 when they started up 
so this this Anna Farwell de Colvin was um, going to be the start of the school. And so the things they did, okay, they had this hotel. They weren't, nobody could use it. It wasn't any good for anything. So fine. They would plop the college into that hotel, five stories on the lakefront. And there would be classes. They would have rooms upstairs. Of course, Anna de Colvin, Anna Farwell would be living with their folks around the corner at their house where they could keep a good eye on her. But otherwise, what they did was they went to the Lake Forest High I'm sorry, they went to the Chicago High School at that time. They built in 1855. And they told all the kids that were graduating that if they wanted to go to college for free, they could come out and be at Lake Forest University. It was what they call it, the Collegiate Department of Lake Forest University. And they could go to college. So it was kind of like Diana Ross and the Supremes, you know? So she was. She was the head student, and she had these um, her buds around her, uh, who were guys and a woman or two, who um, were the students, and that was what started Lake Forest College up again as a co-ed school. And she was co-ed with Attitude. She edited the first um, magazine that they had. She wrote about women's rights. Uh, she became an important author, actually. But um, what there'd been a big controversy at the Presbyterian church over, which was just a little wood frame thing at that time, over whether or not what they should do about this college situation. Some people thought they didn't have any business trying to start the college if they didn't have enough endowment, you know, money in the bank to pay all the bills forever. Well, they didn't have that, especially after the fire. There was no, nobody had cash. They were still building up their businesses even in 1875-76. So they didn't have that to go with. It was really the Farwell family, the, the Charles B. Farwell family, not John V. He was the other side of the fence. He was the conservative. But the Charles B. Farwell family and Mrs. Farwell, who'd been a teacher in a, what they used to call female seminaries, girl schools. Um, and she said, we should do this. And I'm sure Charles said, yes, dear, we'll do that. And he plopped up the money, which they had, and he plopped up his hotel, which he'd bought, and they set up shop. Well, this went from fall of 1876, finished that year out, then started out 1877. By December, um, that lakefront hotel built as a summer hotel, probably the rooms were a little drafty and they all had fireplaces. So probably some of these um, kids started fires in their room and their fireplaces, didn't watch them. And the whole thing was gone in no time. Unbelievable. So the next year they didn't quit. They went, there'd been a little kind of ramshackle hotel that had been built in the middle of what's Triangle Park now. It had been built in 1858. Um, it's gone now, but um, they they moved in there for the fall. I mean, for the spring semester that year, eighteen seventy eight. But by the summer, they had kids um, from there, from the academy and stuff, digging around in the clay, building bricks, and then firing them right on the site to build the five story building that you see when you drive by on Sheridan Road, the big tall building. 
Uh, it was originally called University Hall. Um, when they re kind of grouped as Lake Forest College around 1900, it became College Hall. Then it was completely rehabbed in 1981 and they called it Young Hall after you can imagine the donor who was an alum, Mr. Young, they call it Young Hall. And now this fall, it's gonna open up again with a big new addition on the back um, and all completely rehabbed again, because that was 40 years ago. They're gonna, it's gonna be called Brown Hall um, for William Brown and Solange Brown, who made the, 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 the lead donation, which is around eight, $10 million, something like that. Enough to get your name on the door. And so, you know, that's gonna, that building is still going, you know, 1850, and those bricks were made by kids from clay right there on the ground. It's the classic uh, common brick that you see um, all over the Chicago area. That was one of the outcomes of, it. that school wouldn't have gotten started if C.B. Farwell hadn't had this hotel to start it up and his wife hadn't said, what are we gonna do about Anna? She's too hot a number to send off to someplace that we can't watch. She'll be in serious trouble. So. They kept her home and she, she got through, she got her degree. She was do, already starting to write and everything. Uh, she met a guy in Chicago who then later she, they put him to work. Well, in 1885, a little bit later again, the, the, both the Firewell brothers got together on a project. They made a trade in the state of Texas. State of Texas had no money. As usual, the Firewells had cash and Texas had no cash. Texas had a lot of land they didn't use. So they traded their new marble capital building, Vermont marble capital building with ink and inkwells ready to move in for 10 counties in the panhandle that became the XIT ranch, 1885, uh, lasted until about the 1950s. Anna's new husband in 1884 was put to work in the office in Chicago for that ranch. Well, he really liked music and Anna started working on her dad. He was wasted at that business of theirs and that he needed to do something better than that. And so she got him to, the, the dad to send them off to Vienna for a year where he studied music. And he came home and he started writing what we now call musicals, but back then they called operettas and he wrote songs and all. And this, this all grew out of the Chicago Fire um, getting that college started and the family getting into the culture business in a big way. And him being in government all the time, Charles, uh, running back and forth to Washington. So, oh, and he was also in 1887 when he was there, he was instrumental in getting Fort Sheridan set up after the Haymarket riot in 1886. So that was uh, post-fire. The, the Duran family that came, they were pretty important because Calvin Duran, who lived kind of just west of that 1879 building I was talking about, the, that 1860s building that burned in 1879, was one of the leaders for building the uh, Presbyterian Church that's there now, the building they have. It was built out of stones that came from the Chicago Fire. Second Presbyterian Church, where they'd gotten together to have their meetings to organize the Lake Forest Association, burned in 1871. Um, the stones were moved up to Winnetka, at first, I think, to build maybe a house. That didn't happen. They moved him up to over by where Country Day School is and dumped him because there was a guy named Hall McCormick who was, or one of the McCormicks was going to build a house. Well, that never got built. 
So the stones were just sitting there. So the Presbyterians bought the stones of the building where their whole thing had gotten organized to start Lake Forest. And they used that for the main floor. If you drive around there, they only had enough stone to build the, the first floor. And above it is all sort of shingle style, um, kind of East Coast, semi-colonial shingle style uh, building, but very unique looking building anyway. And, but it came, those stones came out of the Chicago fire. And it was, uh, Henry Durand made donations for that. Um, he then gave the money for the um, Henry C. Durand Art Institute, which was kind of a town gown thing between the college and the, uh, and the community. It was on that corner where the academy had originally been located. Uh, that was 1892. Um, he gave the women's dorm its next door, 1899. He gave the first hospital in Lake Forest, which was on that same piece of property. It was They moved out to West Lake Forest in, 18, in 1942. But from 1899 to 1942, that was the hospital for the town. He was major donor, and he came out of the fire. Then his brother gave the commons that's over on the south on the on the middle campus of the college. The, the family was huge in getting Lake Forest set up. One of Joseph Duran's son was Scott Duran, and his wife, she was daughter of a railroad baron. She was kind of independent, we could say. So she raised cows, she decided, on their place, which was up on Crabtree Lane in Lake Forest, uh, north kind of north part of east side, northeast side. And the neighbors began to find the cows less than uh, picturesque, especially when the wind changed maybe toward their house. So Mrs. Durand with high dudgeon bought a farm up on Sheridan Road, just north of the little village of Lake Bluff, Crabtree Farm. I don't know if you've ever been up there. The oldest estate, you know, along there. It was started in 1860 by Judge Blodgett. Mrs. Durand bought it after Blodgett died in about 1905 and moved her cows up there. 1910 or so, the cow barn burned. And she started all over. She built barns with a system of barns, concrete with concrete roofs that look like tile. If you drive by, you'll see this all. And today it's a arts and crafts museum started by John Bryan. He passed away a couple of years ago, but it's still functioning. And it isn't like a you come by and drop in type of museum. It's for groups. So groups come from Europe. They come from the East Coast. They come from everywhere. Uh, groups have meetings in Chicago and come out to visit there to see this museum. Uh, it's fabulous. Uh, the Lake Forest uh, Preservation Foundation this weekend on Saturday is going to have a tour out there that people can sign up for to go to. And they can see this Mrs. Duran's barn, her model dairy. She was pretty famous. She was an early women entrepreneur. Her husband was, and she was also against in, in the prohibition area, the teens, 20s, early 30s, she was teetotaler, wanted people to drink milk. Her husband, however, was in the grocery business selling sugar to the distillers of the um, hooch that was showing up in the speakeasies. They had their issues, that couple did. Um, but uh, <laughs> she was the only woman that ever went into the Old Elm Club, which is on uh, Everett Road just south of uh, Everett Road, we're driven by that club. Go down there sometime and drive by. It was men only. Only one woman is known to have been there, Mrs. Cal or Mrs. Scott Duran. 
she went in there one day, she, she delivered her stuff and she had some issue with them about paying their bills. And she charged in there and nobody, no other woman has ever charged in there. Still an all men club, nice golf course, but don't bring your daughter. So all this stuff really was result of people coming out after the fire uh, economic interests that that altered by the were altered by the fire because money was short. We we can't. It's hard for us to appreciate how the pandemic sucked money out of the system. We had the Fed to pump money into the system. Now it's creating more problems than good right at the moment. But they kept everything from falling through the floor. What used to happen is something would happen. All the money would the money supply would disappear. And then the only people who would do well would be the people who still had cash. So like after the depression, Lake Forest Library was built with money that the people had because they had money left over after the crash. They were the only people that had money. So if you had a hundred bucks, if you had $10 in 1930, 31, you could buy what a hundred bucks would buy in 1929. They had tremendous deflation. And so what we're seeing now is kind of where you have the opposite problem because the money kept flooding in and now we have inflation. But inflation, yeah. um, what's fascinating is, is that Lake Forest got started up by a few people or it really got a second lease on life in the 1870s because of these people that had money coming out there, out here, getting things started culturally, socially, economically, building beautiful homes and stuff like that. So the Chicago fire is intimately woven into the early history of Lake Forest. Uh, we wouldn't have a lot of what, we wouldn't have a Presbyterian church that's here, wouldn't have um, Lake Forest College. College. Yep, stuff like that. Lake Forest Academy would have probably disappeared. Um, it was after the building burned in 1879, Farwell stepped, Charles B. Farwell stepped up, built the building called North Hall now on middle campus of Lake Forest College. The Reed family built them a campus south of that, which is now the college's south campus. And then in 1948, that was in 1893, then in 1948, when the main building there burned down, they bought Melody Farm out in West Lake Forest. And that place, they just keep going. They're doing great. Lake Forest Academy. Anybody that's got almost $50,000 a year for their kid to be a day student, go knock yourself out out there. You know, that that, that high school costs more than my college. <laughs> Everybody's. <laughs> Everybody's. <laughs> but I mean, it's a wonderful school. And oh, yeah. And I'm sure oh. they give a lot of scholarships too, you know. But I mean, basically, it's built by uh, the, the students have been of the, some of the big families in Lake Forest, and they've built buildings for them. Um, so it's great. Chicago Fire had a, you don't think of the Chicago Fire in Lake Forest. Uh, if you look at what Lake Forest was like before the fire in Chicago, you see what Chicago was like for the wealthier class on the north side across the river. Um, then the fire, the, the interactions right immediately before and after the fire had a big impact on the city, building that hotel, then using it to start the college. And then the families that came pouring in with different kinds of stock, like Chicago Northwestern stock and things like that, they became the new, really made it, continued to have it be a, a millionaire's community. So when people show up today, after like the, during the pandemic they have, 
Uh, they're following an old tradition of leaving the city and coming up here and helping make the place better. Arthur, I would have never thought that one red star in the Chicago flag would have led to all this cr- yeah. crazy, cr- crazy. Art class is now over. Art has grabbed his ruler again. I'm going to step away. Thanks for listening to the Lake Forest podcast. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Let us know what you'd like to hear about on the upcoming shows. Again, I'm Pete. It can be reached at Pete at LakeForestPodcast.com. The link will be in the podcast notes below. On behalf of my co-host, Arthur Miller, we thank you for listening. Our class is now over. See you tomorrow.